If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we've got a conversation with the award-winning historian Serhi Plocky. Serhi's most recent book is Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, an untold story of World War II, which explores the experiences of US servicemen stationed on three air bases in Ukraine in the final years of the conflict. It was a US-Soviet collaboration that began with high hopes, but whose fallout would fuel the Cold War. BBC World History's editor, Matt Elton, met up with him in London to find out more. What, for people who might not be familiar, is your new book about? Uh, my book is about the fall of the Grand Alliance. Uh, that's, this is a book about transition from World War II to the Cold War. Uh, and it deals with this big topic, looking at a number of personalities and very particular places. And personalities and places are not exactly very familiar to people who read about the Grand Alliance or read about the start of the Cold War. Uh, Those uh, uh, people uh, resided for approximately one year, a little bit more than that, Uh, at the three air bases, which were on the territory of the Soviet Union, now it is the territory of Ukraine, at Poltava, Mirhorod, and Pyrjaten. And that was the only, the only case when the Americans and the Soviets fought side by side together. Because one thing about the Grand Alliance was that it was also a very strange alliance where uh, there was an agreement that the, the, the U.S. and U.K. is advancing or not advancing on the Western Front, and the Soviets would launch an offensive or, or uh, go on defense on Eastern Front. Uh, but there was no real real uh, combat where, where the, the Soviets and, and the Western uh, allies would fight together. And... Those three places were the only the only place where that happened. So it's it's a big theme, but it's 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 also a, a lot. I'm trying to pay a lot of attention to particular people in particular places. It's an extraordinary story, um, and one that I certainly hadn't heard much about before I read the book. Um, for people who might not know, first, what do we mean when we say the Grand Alliance? What does that define? Well, uh, uh, Grand Alliance, of course, like many other wonderful things, like wonderful or not so wonderful, like Iron Curtain, were coined by uh, Winston Churchill. And Grand Alliance, this is the title of one of the volumes uh, in his series of World War II um, uh, uh, memoirs. 
So Grand Alliance, it's an alliance between the United States, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was there first in the war and, and then the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and uh, that was the alliance that emerged victorious in the Second World War. And those three leaders, first at Tehran and then at Yalta, uh, really in many ways created the world that we live in today. And just one simple example is uh, the Security Council of the United Nations. Uh, many are unhappy with it today, but again, it, it is there, it is working, and that's that's the creation of the Grand Alliance, the United Nations itself, the, the creation of Grand Alliance. So it's, 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 it's a big, big part of the story and history of the 20th century. Uh, again, I'm trying to approach that people like uh, Roosevelt and, and Stalin and Churchill are very much part of my story. But it's also, I look at the way how their decisions influenced people on the ground, people in the trenches, so to speak. And, and uh, trenches, I, I use metaphorically because my people were airmen. So those were air bases. But again, that's, that's where they, 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 they were together fighting, fighting Nazi Germany. I think that's what fascinates me about the book so much is this connection between this big sort of political strategy and these experiences of people in a very specific place on the ground and in the air, as you say. Um, did people go into this uh, strategy of moving American airmen onto kind of Russian soil as it was at the time, go into it with the hope that it would um, be the start of a grander alliance then? Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. There were there were really high hopes that there would be uh, more cooperation and more air bases in particular. Uh, so the, the 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 soil per se was Ukrainian at that uh, at that time and today, but it was part of the Soviet Union. But the hope was that the Americans will show how good they are as allies, and as a result of that, Stalin would agree to allow them to create air bases in the Soviet Far East, so in, on, on the Russian soil today. Uh, because uh, no one knew at, at that time, and they, they were started planning the, those air bases in 1943. They, they went into action in 44, continued until 45. So no one knew at that time that the, the atomic bomb would actually work. No one knew whether they were going to use it as against Germany or Japan. And the expectations were that there would be hundreds of thousands of Americans who would die in the war for uh, Japanese, uh, main Japanese islands, uh, Japanese homeland. And uh, one uh, part of the plan was, of course, involve the Soviet Union in fight against, against Japan, but another was to allow the American uh, uh, air bases to, to to establish air bases on the Soviet territory uh, in in that way actually easier get into the uh, to Japan. So th there was that there was that vision. One part of it was strengthening the alliance as a whole, becoming real allies, not not just in terms of co coordination, but fighting together. And then there was also a very specific goal as well. Who dreamt up this idea, and how did they persuade Stalin to agree to it? Oh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Uh, the The idea was born uh, with General Arnold, who was uh, a really key figure in uh, designing the, the American ear war. 
during the Second World War. And uh, they had a, a really a major problem in 1943 when they started planning for that. And that uh, th they couldn't effectively really bomb the uh, German uh, targets in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe was occupied, mostly was occupied by, uh, by Germany at that time. Uh, the, the the bombers needed protection of the of the fighter planes, and at that point they didn't have the right fighter planes. So they came up with the idea, which was called shuttle bombing. What that means? That meant that the uh, bombers B-17 flying fortresses, uh, and later that they would be protected by uh, Mustangs, the, the fighter planes. They would take off from the airfields in UK and in Italy later bomb their targets in Central and Eastern Europe, land on the Soviet territory, refuel, get, get new ammunition, and then and, and bombs, and then fly back and, and do bombing again, instead of going to, to Central Europe and then coming back. So that was the, 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 that was the plan in terms of the immediate goals of what, what those uh, air bases were created for. And how did they choose which men worked and served in these bases? Uh, well, uh, on the one hand, they wanted to get people who would uh, be familiar with culture, maybe with language. Not all of them, but significant uh, percentage of them were. But another challenge that they had, that they knew that a lot of people who come from the region, they were not really great fans of uh, Mr. Stalin or, or of, of, of the Bolshevik Revolution. Many of them were either themselves or children of refugees. So they were looking really for people who had that background, linguistic, cultural, and otherwise, but would be still friendly toward, toward the Soviet Union. And they more or less succeeded in, 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 in getting a fair number of those people. But others were just average, average uh, uh, people. They, they were looking for, for the... For the um, um, Crews that would be working on the ground, mechanics and 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 uh, uh, people dealing with, with radio and so on and so forth, and the the uh, um, uh, air wings that were flying to to Poltava, those were anybody. They, they, they were coming there just for for maybe a few days, a maximum for one week. If the weather was was not good, they couldn't take off and, and fly back. But those people who were on the ground, and there was approximately 1,000 of those people, maybe 10% of those had some some relation to the to language and culture. And what was the experience? What was the kind of reaction of these two countries' people when they first got together in these bases? How How, how did they do that? Well, it, it was it was excitement. It was excitement on both sides. Uh, mm, uh, again, uh, in it was that they opened the bases in uh, mm, April and May of 1944. Uh, the the image of the Soviet Union is extremely positive at that time. This is already after the Battle of Stalingrad. This is the after the Battle of Kursk. Uh, and Americans are excited to, to, to see their allies, to work with them, and the Soviets are excited as well. Uh, they, they have the first uh, um, bombing raid, and, and, and the first, which was called Frantic One, uh, it was uh, two days before uh, D-Day. 
So they get the news, all of them get the news about the D-Day, the opening of the Second Front when they are there at Poltava and, and at those bases. So it's 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 really it's really a fantastic story of work and, and cooperation and and camaraderie and, and so on and so forth. So it starts really on very high note. It unfortunately doesn't end on that note. No. Um, are there some particular episodes or characters or stories that you think really illustrate this sense of getting on with each other? Uh, well, um, one of those uh, things where they they uh, really worked nicely together was was the the, the building of those bases, and uh, uh, that is that is certainly one thing. Another thing was when the um, flying fortresses were flying to Poltava. Those were joint crews of mechanics that worked on them. So there would be a person in charge would be normally an American, but there, uh, there would be a couple people uh, under him. Uh, language, there was a language barrier, but still they, they, they managed to, to deal with that. Uh, so uh, those were uh, the, the, those were the, the, the examples. Again, the um, uh, Soviets would not allow their own people to get into into um, uh, B-17 and, and to fly on those missions. But again, occasionally that was happening. And of course, then the uh, counterintelligence, which was called Smersh, uh, uh, death to spies, would would uh, um, get into the picture. Uh, uh, and the, the longer the bases were there, the, the less there was cooperation, the more important, the uh, not the uh, Soviet air commanders, but the secret policemen would become. And the turning point really in, in that, uh, that uh, uh, really wonderful relationship, which I, it's not in the book, but I would call them maybe a honeymoon or something like that in, in that relationship, comes um, uh, less than one month after the uh, bases were opened. Uh, on June 22nd, 1944, uh, the, the second, uh, the second uh, um, uh, this operation, the, the frantic two, the, the uh, fortresses, the flying fortresses came to Poltava and to Mirhorod. And this time around, actually, Germans already knew what was going on. And they located those, those uh, airplanes. They were actually sparkling silver, so it was very easy to see them from, from the sky. And uh, those were uh, the largest uh, they attacked during nighttime, and those were the, the, the heaviest losses of the American airplanes on the ground since Pearl Harbor. So, uh, and uh, after that, the, the relationship started to go south. Uh, the, the, the Americans expected that the Soviets would protect them with their fighter planes, with their anti-aircraft fire. And that didn't happen, not because the Soviets didn't want to, but it turned out that they were not really equipped to do that. Uh, the the, the um, um, fighter planes were supposed to fight during night, but they didn't have radar systems, for example. And the uh, anti-aircraft fire turned out to be very ineffective. So no one single German airplane, Luftwaffe, uh, was uh, was even damaged to, to say nothing about shot during during that uh, during that attack. And uh, that 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 was uh, where where relations again started to be quite tense. Did the two sides openly blame each other for this incident? 
they they did uh, again if uh, it depends on what openly really means so yes in 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 public in media they, they there was a military censorship they would not write about that or talk about that so that never reached the, the american or british or any any media but in the relationship between the between the commanders they were clearly that that's what they that's what they're saying and and the soviets were saying okay we told them that it it was wrong to put one airplane next to another you have to disperse them in the field and uh, the americans would say okay we, we thought that you would protect us we we were based for for more than one year in britain and and then uh, less than that in italy and everywhere we were protected it's the only place where we were not protected and uh, the us commanders then uh, said okay you can protect us allow us to bring our own enter uh, uh, aircraft uh, uh, um, uh, guns and and allow us to uh, to bring our uh, night uh, fighters and the soviets of course didn't want to do that because that means more americans on the on the sacred soviet soil that means more exposure on the part of uh, a local population to the americans and that that's something that the the, the stalin's regime didn't think that uh, that was a good idea that's a good point, actually. What did the local populations make of these people from America? Well, it's 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 a great question because uh, the the air bases were located in the areas that uh, less than a year before the Americans came, more like half a year or something like that, were part of the German occupation. So Germans came to that part of Ukraine in the summer of 1941. They left it in the uh, uh, fall of 1943, and then in the spring of 44, the Americans came. So that was already a second foreign army on, on that territory at that time. And uh, the, the, the local population had really high hopes because that was also meant opening of the, of the Soviet Union to, 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 to the United States, to the West, to the Allies. So some people, uh, and uh, the, the secret police was there, of course, recording that. That's that's how we know all of that. So some people were saying, okay, that means that uh, really a major transformation of the political order is coming, that the party will not be running things anymore. Others were thinking more in terms, okay, the Germans wanted to, to capture this territory through war and Americans are coming and just trying to take it over without, without the war. So there were different, different opinions out there, but overall the, the, the uh, attitude was very positive. Attitude was very positive, and uh, the, the comparison that they were making between the American and Soviet soldiers were not in favor of the Soviet, not in favor of the Red Army, the way how they behaved, how they were dressed, and, and, and so on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The achievements of the Grand Alliance were huge, but even bigger was disappointment that it didn't, it didn't last longer. When in reality, most of the alliances don't go beyond reaching the, the common objectives. So, but, but there were this huge expectation really that the, the and, and big disappointment with the start of the Cold War. And what I'm trying to say that uh, people who were already on the ground, who dealt directly and closely with the Soviets, for them, Cold War started already in 1944. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. 
we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Did the German bombing uh, incident you mentioned uh, increase suspicion uh, in the Soviet quarters of the Americans? Uh, not uh, uh, of the Americans, but that actually added to the to the sense of a deep-seated f- sense of inferiority that the Soviets had, because the the, the Americans had, uh, of course, uh, much more superior aircrafts. A lot of the, what Soviets had were American aircrafts that uh, were supplied um, through land lease or the Soviet aircrafts that were built, uh, uh, they were modeled on the Americans to start with. The, the, the way how the Americans were supplied with spare parts, how they were dressed and so on and so forth. So there was this sense of inferiority in cultural terms and also in terms, okay, there was a super uh, effective and, and, and very rich kind of a country with this well-supplied army when, when the Soviets really didn't have that. And now it turned out that they can't protect them as well. So uh, the, 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 the idea already by, so that happened in late June. In July, the relationship between the, the, the two countries be, became really very bad. And by August, Molotov already started to demand the Americans out. They wanted them out. There was also other reason. The Soviet army launched a very successful offensive campaign on the Eastern Front in June of 1944. So the, the, the air bases ended up within three weeks after they were established, really relatively deep in the Soviet, in the Soviet uh, rear. And uh, the Soviets didn't think that actually they were benefiting too much from, from all of that. At least if you look if if you look at the risks that they were taking, exposing their own population to 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 to, to uh, Americans, quite a few of those Americans would speak Russian or Ukrainian, which presented another another major major problems. So they wanted them out as soon as possible, uh, and uh, eventually they uh, they uh, got rid of two bases by September and October of nineteen. 19- 44, and allowed just only one base to stay, and it was mostly a skeleton uh, type of crew that that, that stayed there, uh, anywhere between um, approximately 200 people, and it started with more than 1,000. One other factor that interests me that you write about in the book is the different attitudes between the two sides about uh, kind of relationships with women. Oh, yeah. Um, that's How did that affect things? Well, that was, that was a major... Uh, well, it's, 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 it was a big part of, of uh, the, the story that, that led to those tensions. And um, the, the um, Soviets, uh, uh, the, they uh, really uh, just acted like the, the, the issues related to dating or sex in the Red Army 
didn't exist. And one of the outcomes of that was, of course, uh, mass rape of, for example, uh, German women and women in Eastern Europe. Uh, the uh, U.S. position was that, uh, yes, the Soviets told them that the American uh, airmen, uh, GIs, are not supposed to date the women in the uniform, so women in the in the Red Army. But it was expected that they would be their allies, that, that, that they would be uh, uh, allowed to date uh, civilian women, like that was the case in Britain again. There were good uh, good memories, bad memories about that. Like that, that was the case in in, in um, uh, France as well. In the Soviet Union, they actually allowed and even encouraged that kind of dating as long as they thought they needed the Americans, and they thought they needed the Americans before the opening of the Second Front. So one of the reasons why Stalin agreed to open the bases was to uh, accommodate. Uh, uh, Roosevelt's uh, request for that because he wanted he wanted the second front. Once the second front was there, one of the reasons to be nice to the Americans disappeared. Then once they 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 moved the uh, uh, frontier as a result, the Soviets, I mean, as a result of that offensive, there was one less reason to have the Americans there. And then there was embarrassment of not being able to, to protect them. So by July of 1945, sorry, 1944, what you see are the military counterintelligence groups and the civilian secret police is going there and actually openly harassing women whom the Americans were dating. And resentment toward rich uh, Americans dating the locals, either in Britain or in France, was there, certainly. But nowhere there was a secret police going there and trying to break the relationships that originally they encouraged to, 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 to develop. Uh, and uh, that, 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 that certainly added, added to the, to the uh, frictions. And... I mentioned that most of the people who came to the bases wanted to, to go there. They wanted to, to work together, fight together with the Soviets. That They were, in, in today's word, Sovietophile, Russophiles, or something like that. And with very few exceptions. By the fall of 1944, and then the, the last base, the Poltava base, existed until June 1945 most of them go back being sworn enemies of the regime. And one thing that they couldn't actually understand or couldn't forgive the regime was the, the fact that it was actually a police state. The fact that that was the regime that was trying also to interfere with their relationship with the local population. The regime where the officials uh, actually openly lied to them. So very few cases out of those 1,000 people who, who were there on basis permanently uh, left uh, still being Sovietophile. Uh, it's a very different story with the pilots who were flying there because they were flying there for two, three days. They were not really exposed to all these things. They were just would get a good sleep, uh, rest, get back into into, into the, the, their planes and fly back. But those who were there, more than 1,000 people, and very few would, would leave uh, uh, the, 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 the country still being 
been appreciative of the regime. Uh, many of them developed developed good relationships with the locals. That they, they liked the people, but but the regime that was that was something that few of them had any any illusions about about the Stalin's regime. You define in the book the reason for that as being a difference of political culture because their aims were alike. They both wanted the same thing, yet it was the culture politically of these two nations that caused this rift. Uh, exactly, exactly. It was, uh, again, when I started researching that and I noticed that that, that that was the trajectory, my original hypothesis was that it was a culture in general. So, okay, language barrier and, and people behave differently and so on and so forth. And by the time I finished the book, I, I kind of narrowed that to particularly political culture. Uh, the Soviets never could understand how the Americans could tell them that, okay, they didn't like FDR and were going to, uh, to vote for somebody else. Uh, the, 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 um, they couldn't understand why they were during the um, October Revolution Day. Uh, they would go and listen for hours for speeches that they didn't understand and why they were supposed to be clapping. They never didn't understand the power that the counterintelligence and secret police had over over the the officers and generals, uh, including generals in the Red Army that they were dealing with. Uh, and uh, how duplicious the the, the the Soviets were in trying to to break uh, the relationship with local women on on the one hand saying okay we are protecting you because they're really prostitutes and and we don't want you to uh, uh, to get all sorts of uh, uh, diseases on the other hand telling these women that okay uh, the, the Americans are really spies and and encouraging them and recruiting them to spy on those Americans and all of that, those women were bringing back to their American boyfriends. So all of that was known. Did the disillusionment that American people felt who were involved in this experience feed outwards into the distrust after the war that led to the collapse of the Grand Alliance? Or was it just that the cultures never changed so that the two underlying factors were still in place? Well, uh, one thing that certainly happened, people who were at the at this basis or people who directly were involved with uh, the, the, the um, issues at the basis, they, some of them were quite prominent people like the U.S. Ambassador Everell Harriman or the, um, uh, the commander of the base was General Walsh, who became then one of the leading uh, commanders in the American sphere of occupation in Germany. They became the first cold warriors. And, and again, that was, again, a part of the, of the um, experience uh, around those bases. Because one big story was that the Soviets refused to give, to allow the American and British airplanes to use those bases to resupply the Polish uh, uh, rebels, the, the Polish uprising that was going on in Warsaw at that time. So eventually it was uh, the, the, the Germans uh, uh, destroyed, destroyed the resistance and destroyed the, the city of, of Warsaw as a result of that. The, they never were able to understand how how the Soviets treated their own prisoners of war, but also the, the absolutely neglected the, the agreements that they signed at Yalta about protecting the American prisoners of war that were liberated by the Red Army from the uh, prisoner of war camps in Germany. 
that was a big issue, again, cultural issue, and it's about political culture, where not just uh, people at the basis, not just Avril Harriman, but President of the United States, Roosevelt himself felt appalled. He, he just wrote that the, the uh, signed at least the the the, the most uh, uh, the, the the harshest telegram that he ever sent to Stalin was around around the issue of uh, Stalin refusing to allow uh, the use of Poltava bases to bring in the American uh, the American prisoners of war and then and then to help to transport them to Iran and through Iran to the to the uh, to the United States eventually. So that was that was a big, big part of, of, of the story. So it, it was political culture at the end. Are there any people whose role in this story you think hasn't been told sufficiently or that you think has been underserved? Um, mm, uh, you're talking about the, the literature that we have already on, on, on the history of the Second World War. Well, uh, uh, someone like uh, uh, Avril Harriman, of course, got, got a lot of attention. But I bring people who are exa- exactly there on the, on the basis. One of them was General Walsh. Then uh, the um, two, two very interesting characters in, in, in my story are um, the... Um, uh, people who, after after the experience at, at Poltava, uh, decided to dedicate their life to the study of the Soviet Union. They end up together. Uh, uh, Franklin Holtzman was one of them, and George Fisher. Uh, they ended up at Harvard doing their, their PhDs there. And uh, the last chapter in my book, it really comes from 1954-1955, when the same officer, the, the counterintelligence officer, who was at Poltava, now was stationed in Washington, D.C., and he was trying to recruit one of his friends, one of his colleagues from Poltava. So it's kind of a f- full circle. So the, the, most of the book deals really with the Second World War, but you have this all-important continuation in the first years and, and the first decade of the Cold War, and this are the very same people with their, with their experiences at those bases. Not all of them, Holtzman, for example, and, and Fisher, again, they, 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 they despite Stalinism, but Fisher, t- t- till the last, last days of his life, was really very leftist and socialist in the United States. So it wasn't really about ideology, because many of those people were left-leaning, at the, at the very start. So it wasn't about culture per se, not about ideology, and not about, as, as you mentioned, goals in, 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 the, in the war because they shared. But there was one thing which is, I, I define as political culture that, that just uh, uh, didn't allow that alliance to last. We should mention the title of your book, which is quite striking. Uh, what is it and who does it refer to? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the title is Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front. Uh, subtitle is An Untold Story of World War II. So the subtitle, I think I just explained. Uh, but but the main title uh, comes from the fact that um, after the... Uh, Soviets uh, insisted that most of Americans would live... Uh, the the basis, 200 people who stayed there, they felt like they were abandoned by their own government. They were forgotten. And they called themselves forgotten bastards of Ukraine. 
So that was that was the 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 name that they invented for themselves. I later realized that they were not very original because th- there was another group of people who called them forgotten bastards, and those were, it seems to me, forgotten bastards of Iceland or something like that. So again, there was a, an American outpost there that felt felt forgotten, and that's that's where the title is coming from. Again, we change, uh, we, we put Eastern Front instead uh, of Ukraine to really place place the, the 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 title of the book and the book itself in the context of the. Second World War, as opposed to any other any, any, any other moment in history. Um, you write that uh, the winds of the new Cold War are becoming chillier by the day. Um, what lessons are there in this book for us in the present, do you think? Well, uh, the lesson is not, of course, don't go and don't create alliances with people uh, that or countries or regimes that don't share your political culture. This is this is not the argument. But you, you have to create alliances. And again, the, the Grand Alliance and, and the alliance with the Soviet Union, Soviet Union was a major, major, major factor in, in defeat of Nazi Germany. But uh, you, you uh, don't have to have your expectations too high in terms of once, once the immediate goal, which you share, geopolitical goal otherwise is achieved, don't expect that alliance to last for too long. And Grand Alliance is a very interesting example of that because uh, there were three participants and the two of them, United Kingdom and, and United States, actually continued to be on very friendly relations through the Cold War. So just one country that that uh, wasn't uh, uh, stopped being part of the alliance and, and the Cold War started. It would be an oversimplification to explain all of that just by political culture, and I'm not trying to do that. But I'm, uh, I'm convinced and I'm really very insistent that political culture is, was part of that. For, 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 for the, the Soviet Union falling out and, and, and the UK and US sticking together. Okay. Not the only thing, but that was part of the story. So how, how can we counter for that? How can we get around that being a major obstacle? Uh, well, uh, that means that uh, from the very beginning, you have to start planning already uh, uh, for, for post-alliance part. And uh, the, the achievements of the Grand Alliance were huge. But even bigger was disappointment that it didn't, it didn't last longer. But in reality, most of the alliances don't go beyond reaching the, the common objectives. So, but, but there were this huge expectation, really, that the, the, and, and big disappointment with the start of the Cold War. And what I'm trying to say that uh, people who were already on the ground, who dealt directly and closely with the Soviets, for them, Cold War started already in 1944. And one of uh, uh, people I, whose memoirs I uh, who was at, at, at one of the bases and whose memoirs I, I quote here, uh, he was saying that really that was a precursor to the Cold War. He, he writes, of course, post factum uh, from his perspective in the 1990s, but that that is his assessment, and I, I fully agree with him. And it's also very interesting that he was he was a, a farmer from from. Uh, um, Middle East, uh, sorry, sorry, Middle West in the in the United States, but I thought that he gave the most the most uh, um, 
precise, the, the most accurate assessment of what happened there when quite a few of people who became intellectuals, who were intellectuals at that time, were really lost and, and were trying to figure out what was going on. But that farmer actually nailed it down for, for, for himself. And, and I thought, okay, that's after, after years of research. That's also the conclusion that I am prepared to share, that that was the, the, the beginning of the Cold War already there on those bases. That was Serhi Plocky. His book, Forgotten Bastards of the Eastern Front, An Untold Story of World War II, is out now, published by Alan Lane. You can read a version of this interview in issue 20 of BBC World Histories, which is also out now and includes features on the greatest leaders in world history, hidden stories of the Holocaust, and some political lessons that we can learn from ancient Athens. If you enjoyed this interview, back in August, Serhi also spoke to Matt about his previous book on the Chernobyl disaster. You can find that at our website, historyextra.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Chris Bowlby will be discussing the legacy of Nazism in modern Germany. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.